日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey everybody, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris, and today we're going to finish off our top 10 list of the best samurai films of all time. So, hopefully, you're looking forward to that. We'll be covering number five to number one for myself, Mike, and Michael. And before we get started,、uh, be sure to check samuraipodcast.com for all back episodes and further information about these episodes. What you'll also find at samuraipodcast.com are the ways that you can help the podcast. You'll find links to the Samurai Archives store. The t shirt shop. You know, you can get all sorts of things that'll help you rep the podcast. And if you'd really like to help out the podcast, then please head over to patreon.com slash samurai archives. I've got some pretty big goals in mind for the future, but I really need your help because a lot of the stuff that I want to do is actually pretty pricey. And every penny that goes towards the podcast literally goes towards the podcast. It covers all these things that I'm trying to do. And so all the help's appreciated. Every penny's appreciated. And you know, even if you don't think that you're able to contribute, if you do want to go over there and just sign up, you can still get access to free content and updates. But anyway, let's get started with the episode. Enjoy. All right, so we're back. So today we're going to be giving our top five samurai films. And so again, with me today is Mike and Michael. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hi. All right, so now that everyone is familiar uh, we, uh, with how this works, we did our last episode. So, continuing on this time, we'll be going from number five down to number one. So, I guess since the precedent has been set, we'll start off with Michael. Okay, my number five, I've cheated on this one because in Japan it was actually a television movie, but it did get a theatrical run in France and in England. So, basically, it's、um, director is Kinji Fukasaku. And it stars Koichi Sato, Sanada Hiroyuki, and with assistance from the Japan Action Club. And it's known as Abe Ichizoku no Inbo, or the Abe Clan. This is a total bloodbath. You know, we talk about those、um, one against hundreds. This is like, I think, Fukasaku's masterpiece in samurai films. I mean, not only did a few. But basically, you know, this story is、um, the Abe's family were members of the Hosokawa clan. And when Lord Hosokawa died, all his favorite retainers followed him in death in seppuku, except for old man Abe, who was excluded. He there becomes an object of ridicule by the clan. And he goes around, you know, trying to atone for, you know, not following his lord. And theoretically, by law, he's not allowed to. Finally, he's had enough and he goes and kills himself anyway. And instead of having the desired effect, the clan is、um, in trouble with the, you know, the new lord and they're ordered to disband. The oldest son protests and is arrested and executed. So the rest of the Abe children, all their retainers and servants, barricade themselves in the house. And to put a twist on it, Koichi Sato, or Sato, Is given the lead command of the squad to attack the house, and Sonata Hiroyuki is the next eldest Abe clan member. And so here we have like maybe all the women and children kill themselves. The last like 45 minutes or 30 minutes is just like 13 assassins, only without such a happy ending. <laughs> 
as the Abe family battle against like hundreds of mounted samurai coming in from all directions. And, you know, we, being in the hands of um, Sonata controlling the Japan Action Club, the fighting is fierce. I mean, it's actually quite bloody for television or theatrical, as it was released a theatrical movie everywhere outside of Japan. And it's probably, you know, Fukusaku's most obscure film also, which is a shame because it, this one deserves to be up there. I think it's easily the best thing he ever did in the Chambra Jedi Geki mold. Hmm. Another one that I haven't heard of, but it sounds good. Sounds great, actually. Yeah, this is amazing. First time I saw this, it blew me away. It was like watching 13 Assassins for the first time. Hmm. Yeah, and I think Sanada Hiroyuki is such a great actor, but we, we also know that he is a phenomenal swordsman. He's amazing in this one. And, you know, they used like um, a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, a big duel between him and Sato, Sato where they used Nanganatas. Hmm, that's different. Yeah, I mean, they use, you know, short spears, long spears. I mean, but it's just, you know, one of those phenomenally blood-drenched endings that we all love. <laughs> so that's my number five. All right. Okay, Mike, you're up. Okay, so this is my first Kurosawa film to make it on the list. Um, and, of course, uh, this one is the 1980s. Uh, I picked Kagamusha. As mine. I know some people said it was the dress rehearsal for Ron, but I think out of the two, I prefer Kagamusha, mostly because I was a Takeda junkie when I started <laughs> getting into uh, the history. I actually prefer it too. I feel like it is a better film than, than Ron. Me too, actually. Because it's one of the few Kurosawa films that really doesn't, um, he doesn't rely heavily on Mufune, but also I think the set design is phenomenal the the costuming of course is on point and the acting and the fact that i think it's one of the earlier films to actually have the same actor on set at the same time and so i think it it did really a, a phenomenal job at it one of the only parts i didn't like was i think the dreamscape thing that really weird uh, dream scene with the col- the weird coloring and the lightning and trees and all that. It it kind of I think pulled away from the historical aspect of it as a Jidaigeki. Hmm. I vaguely I actually didn't think about that, but I I do remember that now that you mentioned it. Yeah, it kind of pull it, it kind of drew me away from it a little bit, but I think otherwise it is far superior. And of course, uh, you have the Battle of Nagashino at the end, and you know, always depicted. And I think if anyone's a Takeda junkie. Or if they like Kurosawa films, they have to definitely watch Kagemusha. It was required watching when I was teaching Japanese history at the university. We actually had to watch Kagemusha in its entirety. And um, we were running out of time, so I stopped it right at the Battle of the Nagashino. And everyone's like, we want to stay later, like stay late to watch the ending. We have to know what happens. And so uh, even younger students, you know, 18, 19 years old, were drawn to this film when I showed it. I always felt like Kurosawa's later films in the 80s were his weakest as far as samurai films go but i did you know i i, I give him the respect for kagamusha i did like it but i feel like compared to the you know his old stuff it just doesn't hold up that's just my opinion though oh i totally i totally agree um in comparison to things uh like throne of blood uh seven samurai yojimbo sandro it has it's it's much more flawed and you can see how much older he's getting and how 
I guess, tired. And I believe around that time his eyesight was going. So he hmm. he, he was uh, really having a lot of trouble filming. And that one was most famous, I think, for having financing issues. Right. Didn't he get, uh, I don't even remember. Was that the one where he got like Spielberg and others to throw in? Yeah. Uh, all those directors who were fans of his earlier stuff. That's right. And the whiskey commercials. <laughs> it was also the original lead role played by Nakodai was actually written for Shintaro Katsu. Wow. Yeah, Kurosawa always wanted to make a film with him. So basically, Katsu shows up on the first day of shooting and he brings his whole camera crew with him because he wanted to critique his own performance at the end of the day. So Kurosawa stops, steps, sees the camera crew and walks over and goes, What are they doing here? And um, Katsu explained what he was doing, and Kurosawa goes, no, 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 there's only one director here, and it's not you. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> At that point, Katsu just lost it and marched off with his whole camera crew, took him with him, and never came back. So, so Kurosawa was going crazy, calling him up, and he wouldn't return his calls. So then he went to Mifune, and Mifune was making Shogun. Right, right. Kurosawa just lost it. He said, what, you know, you're making that British piece of shit, you know, and you should be, be working for me. <laughs> Probably Mifune's worst role ever. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, sure, it was a fat payday, though. Nakadai stepped in. But I agree, I think it's, it's my favorite Kurosawa film by a long shot. It's one of my favorite films on the Takeda, which, incidentally, um, for Takeda junkies, my fourth and third choices are going to revolve around them. All right, so my number five is uh, actually a new movie from last year, 2017, and, and I'll admit that's probably why it's on the list, because I, I've seen it recently, and I, and I really liked it. But uh, it flips the script and casts Ishida Mitsunari as the good guy and Tokugawa Ieyasu as the bad guy, which, which actually worked really well. It's uh, Sekigahara from 2017, and uh, I thought it was really well done. Uh, the one thing about this movie that really struck me was the, the way the, the battle scenes were filmed, and... Very little to no CGI was used. So the way I kind of explain it is like, it would be phenomenal for like 2002. So, so the battle scenes are really good, but I mean, in this age where we're so used to seeing CGI battles, like epic CGI battles and this and that, this film actually doesn't do any of that, but they're still really well done. So like I said, I guess the best way to explain it would be to say, it would be spectacular for 2002. So for 2017, they're really good. Uh, but you, you kind of feel the lack of CGI because it's just something we've gotten so used to. Which, you know, might be just a flaw, a flaw of, of the viewer now because we're so used to that kind of thing. Um, but it's a great film. The guy that played Mitsunari was, was awesome as the sort of the... I wouldn't put him in the lovable loser category. He's kind of like the, the idealistic... Uh, honor-bound samurai, whereas Ieyasu is like this slimy, gross uh, trickster, and it really worked in the film. Uh, one thing that I didn't like about it, though, is they shoehorned in a weird romantic relationship between Mitsunari and a, a female ninja, Kunoichi, so that was strange, but uh, <laughs> it was real, and it really felt shoehorned. It, was, it didn't seem to serve any purpose, but that aside, the, uh, the movie was great, and... Uh, the actor that plays Shima Sakon was a total badass. He's was, was probably the, one of the best modern samurai characters in, in film. A little over the top, I thought, but I, I thought he was really awesome as, as this kind of battle-scarred, badass, angry old samurai. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's all, that's all I can really say about it. 
Battle scenes were great, but they feel lacking just because we're so used to CGI. And then that goofy female ninja love interest for Mitsunari. But other than that, it was a great movie. I highly recommend it. But again, I'm probably biased because I, I just recently saw it. But that's my number five, so I'm sticking with it. I think that I've been meaning to watch that one, but I don't know if there's any access to it here in the States. Yeah, I'm not sure. Probably not. I, I saw it. I, I went to basically when I was in Japan last year, it was playing in the theater. So I was like, I am absolutely going to go see that. Had they had some CGI in there, unfortunately, because I feel like it's just something we're so used to at this point that uh, it really would have benefited from some CGI battle scenes. But the fact that it wasn't CGI says a lot about how great it actually was. It it uh, did some really good battle scenes. But I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just kind of like beating a dead horse. But I, I just feel like we're so used to CGI and battle scenes nowadays that when when they're lacking, it kind of you kind of feel it. Yeah, it feels uh, different somehow. Mithuni played um, Shima Sakon in the original TV version in 1990. Wow. Was it, was it any good? No, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it really is bad. I mean, it's about five hours long. Jeez. It has uh, that love triangle, sorry, the love thing with the ninja girl goes on forever. Yeah, that, that mystified me. Maybe they did take it from that. Maybe maybe there's maybe it's coming from some source material that I'm not aware of. But just It's adapted from a Ryotaro Shiba book. Oh, okay. Then that's probably what it is. But yeah, that whole that whole sub subplot with the uh the, the female ninja as a love interest just yeah, didn't put do me it for off me. I haven't seen this yet, but I'm gonna, you know, eventually see it. Because um in the original version, I mean it was beyond tedious. It had this horrible modern jazzy score. And when you finally get to the Battle of Segihara in the last 20 minutes, there's only about 20 people on horseback and it looks like they shot it in the local park. Oh, geez. Yeah, this one was uh, a lot more people. I mean, I could be wrong. They could have used some CGI to beef up the number of people, but it was so seamless you don't really see it. But all uh, every close-up shot and every, uh, every wide-angle shot uh, where you're seeing kind of close-up stuff was definitely not CGI. And I think another thing, too, that, that we've gotten used to is, is uh, now I don't know what you'd call this, I guess the lighting. In a lot of movies, they, they play with the lighting, in, in, with probably with CGI, to make it more like, I don't oh, know. Like, like don't filter know. it. And... Yeah, you know how they did like uh, like the battle scene in Game of Thrones, uh, the, the Battle right, of the Bastards, right. or uh, Saving Private Ryan. They, they tweak the, the, the visuals to make it look more, some, they do something to it. Yeah, they do color grading and yeah. changing the lighting. Yeah, so... Whereas compa- in comparison to... I don't know if you've seen um, Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio where yeah. the director relied solely on natural lighting. Right. So that was this, this one. They they relied solely on natural lighting. So it, it almost looks like it, it... Again, it feels lacking because we're not... Because we're so used to all these like CGI things. So I, I think it almost it almost suffers because not because it's bad but because we've been so spoiled with cgi stuff over the past few years because yeah natural lighting no cgi but very very well done it feels naked almost i think yeah but that's my that's my number five sekigahara from 2017 okay i'm up for number four and um sorry takada takeda comes next after these after this number four i forgot about this one the title, I'm going to say the title first for a specific reason because you're going to be horror struck. <laughs> but it's not the film you think it is. The title is The Last Samurai. <laughs> oh, and you're telling me Tom Cruise did not make your number four? No, he didn't. Thank God. This one actually is um, 
a similar topic, and it's from 1974. It was directed by Kenji Masumi. It's his last film he actually made before he passed. And it's based on a novel from Shikataro Ikanami, who wrote Hisatsu, of course. And it's an all-star, big-budget extravaganza with Hideaki Takahashi, Ken Ogata, Kondo Masomi, Saigo Terahiko, and Keiko Matsuzaka. And basically, Hideki Takahashi plays this young swordsman who strolls through the whole Bakamatsu into the Meiji era, making friends on both sides. So he's, he's like, a, he's like a, a Japanese Forrest Gump or something? Yeah, he becomes friends with Akita Saji. <laughs> he becomes friends with a couple of guys from Satsuma. And they all go out, you know, they all, actually, the amazing thing is several scenes, they all put their differences together and go out drinking together. <laughs> and after, the, you know, the restoration, he becomes a hairdresser. Oh, jeez. It's a really, like, great film because he, it concludes at the Senian War. And he's, you know, there's a lot of scenes in this. It opens with the Ikidaya incident with Shinsengumi. All right. It's completely as blood splattered as any lone wolf or cub. I mean, when the violence hits, there's arterial geezers of blood flying everywhere and slashing blades. And it does like a fantastic um, Toba Fushimi. And it's just a really awesome film. I and mean, it's really worth seeking. It's almost three hours in length, but it's um, completely as different to the cruise films you could ever get. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it's actually, for once, it's actually um, out on legitimate DVD. Neptune Media put it out. So it's been released domestically about a couple of years ago, and it's got brand new subtitles and translation. So it's basically, they have a a fictional character that kind of wanders around meeting all of these historical figures. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, he meets all these people like Hanjiro Nakamura, who is like one of Saigo's people, and Akita Soji. And various other like Hitokiri on both sides of the fence in the Bakamatsu era. So he's, he's totally Forrest Gump. Yeah. The thing that binds them all together is the appreciation for each other's swordsmanship. Huh. You know, a plot like this could easily go corny, but it doesn't. That's, that's what I was wondering. But I, I guess since it's your number four, it, it must not. Yeah. I mean, it's a really awesome film. I mean, it's, um, it's one of those films you never forget. I mean, it's kind of like some very haunting aspects to it. And even at the end, you know, towards the end, when they think, you know, the horrors of war, when they think about all the people they've lost, and then the Senian War breaks out. So that was, you know, easily my um, number four. And once in this game, you know, Kenji Masumi had a great career. I think he was just like, most people, of course, know him for what he did for Low Wolf and Cub. But I think he was one of the great underrated directors. All right, for my uh, number four pick, I think this is the first Heian period movie that we talked about, but uh, this one's starring Isayo Yamagata, and it's Gate of Hell, set in the uh, 12th century. It's the story of a kind of a, a dirty, I'll use the term dirty samurai, who saves uh, an aristocratic lady and then tries to pressure her to leave her husband so that they can be together, and he hatches a plot to kill her husband and I'm not going to get to the end I'm not going to spoil the ending but I thought it was a really good film it was nominated for one foreign language Oscar and it won two Oscars for I think costuming and color 
So it was a two-time Oscar winner. It was at Cannes. It did really well there as well. And the the I, I mentioned this one when we're when I was on the last podcast, but it was really one of these weird situations. I was looking for a Hayden period film to show in college, and I was kind of trolling the Samurai movie comments online, and I ran into a really old one from Tony, Anthony Bryant, who recommended it. And this was, of course, after he had passed away. So even after that, you know, he was giving recommendations and giving his opinion on Hay and stuff. So I definitely put it on there. It The, the, the costuming is phenomenal in terms of Hay movies because we know how uh, rich and how layered those costumes were. And the acting is bar none. Um, can't remember the actress who played uh, Lady Keza Michiko Kyo, but she did a phenomenal job, I think. And it's one of those really weird. It's one of the samurai movies that there's not a whole lot of action. I mean, there's a couple scenes, but it's mostly powered by its drama and uh, the. It's very dialogue driven, I think, as a film and. I think it's worth anyone who wants to see a decent movie set in the Han period. Cool. I don't think I have any Han period films on my list. And in fact, when you think of samurai films, you usually think of Edo period, I guess, because that's the typical... It's usually Muramachi or even early Edo. Yeah, like it, it, the uh, Edo usually matches up with well with the westerns, so you kind of get that sort of western feel. Yeah, interesting. I'll have to check and in, look into that one too. Yeah, it's a very good dramatic film. I think Criterion has it now. And I just really liked it as a Hain film. Otherwise, your only other option is Om Yoshi. <laughs> Which, incidentally, is by the same director as When the Last Sword is Drawn. Oh, jeez. And I thought Om Yoshi was pretty terrible, but that's just me. Yeah, and both of them were. That's why I was so shocked when The Last Sword was drawn. It's so good. Yeah. Someone must have, uh, someone must have set him straight at some point. Yeah, I mean, they don't make too many films. The only films I've seen from the Heian area are those two films they've made about um, Tale of Genji, the two recent ones in 2001 and 2011. Right. Well, it's like that line from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. You do the money film first, and then you do the art film. Yep. All right. I guess, uh, I guess I'm up. So my number four is actually two films. I, I kind of... The reason, well, the reason will become obvious here. Uh, the, uh, both star Toshiro Mifune playing the same character, and you'll see the, the spaghetti western influence and back and forth. We've got Yojimbo and Sanjiro. And the reason I kind of put them together is because in my mind I always kind of get them confused because they are vaguely, uh, they're vaguely similar. I, I prefer Sanjiro, but I think Yojimbo is a great film too, so I figured it'd be worthwhile to just kind of stick them both on there. But everyone should remember Yojimbo as the film that inspired. Well, I mean, I could be wrong, but is it, was it a fistful of dollars? Yeah, fistful of dollars. Yeah, which is which I love fistful of dollars. When you look at uh, Yojimbo, you can you can totally see the the, the parallels there, and then uh, Sanjuro as well. Which, uh, like I said, I kind of liked Sanjuro a little bit better, but uh, I think Yojimbo has like the more the tighter the tighter plot. I kind of like the way that it's it's more of a set piece, and it's it's uh, got a very straightforward plot. There's not a lot of exposition, yeah. but uh, basically in Yojimbo, he. Uh, Mifune is, you know, of course, a wandering ronin because, you know, that's what he does. And uh, he enters the town with uh, these two rival factions, I guess, are competing to take over some kind of gambling operation. 
I think he just hires himself to both of them, and uh, you know, mayhem ensues. But I, I really like uh, I really like Yojimbo and Sanjiro, and I, I like the uh, the whole idea of the the wandering Ronin, I ca- and uh, almost as like gunslinger, the wandering Ronin as Western gunslinger, I guess you could say. It's definitely set up for that type of look, and I sadly I didn't put it on my list anywhere, and I thought about it, and uh, I thought it the action really set up for that Western. You know, even the way that Toshiro Mifune draws on these guys, that he uh, is the gunslinger, you know, the fastest sword in Japan. And I think there's kind of an allusion to the Westerns in that one villain with the revolver. He has the foreign gun, sort of, and he just kind of relies heavily on it. But I think Yojimbo was the stronger of the two, honestly. Jura's more talky. Yeah, I, for some reason I, because I, 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 uh, I had Sanjiro higher on my list overall, but I, I kind of, I, mm, that's a tough one. <laughs> I, I, I kind of have Sanjiro higher on my list, but I feel like Yojimbo stands out more. So, so that's why I kind of went with both of them. And I mean, Sanjiro had, of course, that over-the-top duel at the end. Right, yeah, which I definitely liked. Yeah, and I, I really like uh, kind of comparing the uh, spaghetti western with these two. I really like. I loved Fistful of Dollars. I thought it was like a perfect, I guess, homage to the uh, to Yojimbo. Well, Leone believed that they actually had the rights to remake it, but apparently the producers, George Papi and Harry Colombo, hadn't paid up. So um, Kurosawa sued Leone. Damn. And one of them. Um, Leone's arguments was that Kurosawa had stolen um, the plot from Daishal Hamas's Red Harvest. And years later, after everybody was dead, Kihachi Okamoto would admit that Kurosawa did indeed steal the plot from Red Harvest. Oh, wow. And it's the same thing, like this guy called the Continental Operator in the 1920s walks into this border town with like two rival gangs and basically pits them against each other. Huh. Yeah, I guess that is an obvious obvious take. So that was part of Leone's lawsuit, but he actually lost it. And um, the only territory Leone... So Kurosawa received all the international monies and rights for a fistful of dollars on top of, you know, Yojimbo. And Leone was awarded the box office in Mexico where it bombed because they were the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like, there is a lot of differences, but, you know, Okamoto basically came out and said, you know, Kurosawa is a great director, but he stole from everybody. Mm. That makes sense. But then a lot of people stole from him too. So it kind of, uh, it's, it's one big circle. Yeah, I mean, who didn't steal from who? Well, they all did it. Same as musicians. Yeah. But yep, that's my number four. I, I think overall, I like Sanjiro a little bit better, but I think Yojimbo stands out more. Yeah, the you know tartan scarf that Nakadai wears, he actually they found on the set they were free, they were shooting in sub zero temperatures, so he just wore that you know Scottish tartan muffler. Mm, that's funny. Yeah, which as it was in the Bakamatsu era, and they were west, they were westerners in Japan at that point. It wasn't such a big stretch. Mm, that makes sense. All right, I guess you're up. Okay, my number three came out in 2012, and it kind of went under the radar, but it's actually a really wonderful film about one of Hideyoshi's less successful sieges. In fact, this was um, the stain on Aishida Mitsunari's capabilities as any kind of general, and it's The Floating Castle, Japanese titled Nobu no Shiro. And um, 
It was direct, actually two directors, neither of which I've ever heard of, Shinji Higuchi and Ishin Inudo. And it's based on a book by somebody named Ryo Wada. But um, the film actually runs for almost two and a half hours. And the basic plot is as a hojo are holding off against Hideyoshi, then, um, you know, the order is for all the hojo strongholds to hold out. So the little fortress of Oishi is, comes under Mitsunari. And using Hideyoshi's tactics of trying to flood it, he tries to basically, you know, drown them and force them to surrender. But the lord of the castle is like this lovable idiot. And he basically, no one takes him seriously. They call him Lord Bone, which is short for Lord Bonehead. And he actually manages to, um, he was the only one in the Hojo castles that actually managed to hold out against Hideyoshi. And they only surrendered when they were told to by their lord. So it's actually been a really beautiful film. It's a big budget. The battle scenes are great. Koichi Sato is one of the main warriors. It's just amazing. And it's got all this like, glib and black humor running through it as well. So this one I really highly recommend if anybody can track it down. I feel like I've seen it, but I don't remember it very well. It's been a while. What, what year was that again? 2012. 2012, okay. Yeah, I feel like I've seen it, but it's just been too long. Yeah, and I played on a lot of airplane flights between Japan and the US. I know a couple of people saw it. I, mean, I just actually found saw it. I originally saw it without subtitles and just watched it the other day for the first time with subtitles. And I was actually so surprised at how good it was that it, um, it replaced Furin Kazan as my third film. And it's great because you see Mitsunari, basically, he knows he's really screwed up and there's no comeback from this. And it's something that allegedly haunted him to the end of his days. Like all his generals lost faith in him because he couldn't overrun. I mean, they had like... 20,000 men versus 200, and they couldn't win. So who does uh, Koichi Sato play? He plays um, somebody, a warrior named Tanba, who's an expert with a spear and one of the Lord's retainers. There's an interesting side note to this. Um, there's a female warrior, Kaihim. Historically, she actually routed the Sonata clan, killing one of their top generals during this siege. But here they kind of played down her role a bit and give him more of a preference to um, the lord of the castle, Narita, who was played by Masai Nobumura, who I can guess is must be some kind of comedic actor, because I've never seen him before in anything. The actual scenes when they flood the castle are great, and they actually get the villagers to retaliate by bursting one of, one of Mitsunari's dams, so the water comes back on them. <laughs> I mean, it's just like his cat and mouse game. The finale to it is amazing. The actual Lord, the idiot, sails out in this boat and just starts dancing and performing lewd songs in front of them. And he kind of wins the heart of all Mitsunari's troops as well as his own people. And he becomes too um, popular to kill. It's got an amazing, a pretty amazing story. What I also liked about it, it's a very like a tiger drama they took you over the present day areas and showed you where all the scenes took place hmm that sounds like an interesting movie is that a comedy or is there just comedic aspects to it it's, it's just got comedic aspects to it it's actually a serious film you know the real siege they did a couple of changes just to make it fit the story better like um the actual crazy lord they changed his status he was actually 
the brother of the actual lord of the castle, and here they make him the son for some reason. But aside from that, it's really... I mean, I was surprised. It was really good. The battle scenes are great. The comedy is real funny when it happens. And the acting is superb. Hmm. Sounds like something worth watching. Oh, I, I highly recommend it. Because I feel like, especially here stateside, that we don't get a lot of access to a lot of the more obscure stuff or the better, I guess, cinematic quality movies. We we usually get the really popular ones and never given a chance with a lot of the foreign language films that I think uh, would be more culturally significant. Well, I feel like samurai films are, are samurai films are pretty niche as far as marketing goes, so I feel like maybe that's why we don't get a lot of them. Oh, they're incredibly niche. You know, I mean, basically... If it wasn't for the fan subbers, we wouldn't see any of this stuff. That's probably true. You know, like about at least three quarters of every film I've seen, I've seen first via fan sub copy. Like Merlin from Samurai DVD. I mean, this guy has been doing it since the 80s. So in, and his partner, Ichiban, was the one who put out Floating Castle. I think he's got copies on his website for about 14 bucks. I'm not sure. But it's well worth tracking down. I think definitely anyone who's a fan, it sounds like I I was unable to see it, but I'm definitely going to add that to the list of things I want to track down. Yeah, this blew me away. I didn't know it would be so good. It was right. like, you know, I was totally unprepared for it. I thought it was going to be okay. <laughs> and I actually ended up liking it a lot better than my original third choice, Furin Kazan. So that replaced it. All right. I guess, Mike, you're up now for number three. So for my number three, I went for a, a Yoji um, Yamada 2002 movie based off a novel by uh, Shuhei Fujisawa. And of course, it's The Twilight Samurai, which I believe was the watch-along movie we had uh, with the Samurai Archives. Yep, I had, uh, I had actually never seen it until uh, yesterday. Yeah, I mean, the reason was I tried to watch it actually multiple times. I tried to watch it three or four times over the years. And man, I felt like that first 40 minutes just drags. I just couldn't get into it. But since I had no choice but to watch it yesterday, actually, it turned out to be a lot better than I had uh, thought originally. And, and I mean, for me, I'm always a Hiroyuki Sonata fan. Um, I can watch just about anything with him in it. Um, spoiler alert, he is in the new Westworld season. <laughs> Briefly. Doing what he does best. <laughs> one and a half yeah. episodes yeah very briefly not nearly as much as as we were led to believe <laughs> right i think right. it's about 10 uh, minutes of screen time period yeah. for the two episodes and it uses a lot of the japanese version of uh, cinematic cliches so we have sort of the plucky loser he's a poor low-ranking samurai bureaucrat who builds cricket cages for extra money I think he was also making umbrellas at one point and so he is basically thrust into a lot of the political intrigue of the time and you know we do have the love interest but uh, I can see why it was nominated I think it was for the 76th Academy Award because uh, I think Hiroyuki Sonata is an excellent actor a wonderful swordsman you know, well-trained in, in both aspects. But really, I think that build-up 
is long from an American perspective. Like we need an explosion within ten minutes of a film to keep us going. But uh, it, it was a real build up to what was going on, I think, and it used a lot of those Japanese cliches really well. I think only because it had the the right actors put in the place. Yeah, I definitely have to say if uh, if you want to see. If you want to see a collection of stereotypical Japanese tropes, then Twilight Samurai is definitely for you. It's got the unrequited love, then the resolution, and the, the plucky loser, and pretty much every single stereotypical Japanese cliche that you could imagine. The interesting part is that these aren't typical tropes for American movies or for Western movies, so they're, they're, the Japanese have their own tropes, and Twilight Samurai highlights them very well. Well, and I... I... I, I believe those tropes are kind of oozing into uh, American cinema in a way, especially with a lot of those dystopian uh, sort of teenage ju- um, juvenile novels that you always have the plucky loser, some kind of con- like society against man conflict or, or the fates against uh, man. And then, you know, you have the romantic love interest and I think it's oozing in sort of that area. And it, it, it was kind of interesting seeing, you know, Sonata play the plucky loser because I think he oozes with, like, machismo and sort of that stoic Japanese um, attitude that you see with, like, Toshiro Mufun or even, like, Takeshi Kitano. Who, uh, so just seeing him play the plucky loser was kind of an interesting uh, take, I think. Yeah, the the stoic loser who... Uh, gives up the love of his life because he knows that he's not good enough for her. <laughs> These very typical Japanese tropes. <laughs> right, and I mean, um, you know, Sebe just sucks at life, uh, apparently. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. also actually kicked off a whole boom of Shuhei Fujisawa adaptions, which are still being made on film and TV to this day. I mean, um, hmm. apart from resurrecting Sonata Hiroyuki's career, it also gave a big jump start again to Rei Miyazawa, who was the female love interest. And um, the interesting thing about it is this is the role that got Sonata his role in the cruise film, The Last Samurai. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and they saw the Twilight Samurai and signed him up immediately. Right, because we ended up getting Twilight Samurai after the last samurai here and so it, it kind of gets i guess confused but i think yoji yamada made a killing off of um the fujisawa novels because he did the twilight samurai the hidden blade and what love and honor, love and honor which actually is my favorite of the three the one i really like is not done by yamada it's called the samurai i loved that actually came out here on animego in around 2005, 2006. But it's the same story, the Stoic loser and the girl he's in love with he's not good enough for, and he has to fight to save her in the end. I mean, I've noticed that, you know, Fujisawa's stories all seem to center around the same provinces and they all have the same themes. A downtrodden poor samurai, a lady he loves above his station, Although there are a couple of them where he's actually, um, he has about three books about female swordswomen. Some of those actually have been filmed. Um, The River's Edge is one that's been out for a while. And, um, oh God, I forget the other one. There's actually three of them about female swordswomen in the same province. 
that are actually avenging, you know, some kind of wrong that was done to their family. Do they all take place in the fictional Unasaka domain? Yep. All the domain next door. <laughs> huh. Yeah, that was really uh, odd. I didn't real I didn't realize that they were actually just making up a fake domain. Uh, the Unasaka domain apparently is is been used in multiple movies. Yeah, the thing I think I read about Fujisawa, he suffered from TB all his life and he was a heavy smoker. And each time he wrote these books, he thought it was going to be his last. But he apparently kept on, you know, making, you know, doing more and more of them. And, you know, nearly all of his, NHK actually started adapting his stuff in the early 70s. But um, it was Twilight Samurai that actually made him a kind of somewhat, I can't call it a household name, but at least made him more famous. And the book it was based on, The Bamboo Sword, was actually translated to English. Hmm. I wonder if that's why a lot of his characters die of TB. Yeah, probably because <laughs> he himself had it, even though he lived for a long time. He used to write these stories. I forget which newspaper he was working for, but um, they're all like short stories in the Sunday paper. All right. Uh, Mike, anything else on the subject of uh, Twilight Samurai? No, I think uh, everything that was supposed to be said was said. Okay. All right, my number three. Should be an obvious one. The inspiration for Star Wars. It's got everything. It's got R2-D2, C-3PO, Princess Leia, and a, a grumpy old uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's a Hidden Fortress by Kurosawa. And uh, it's, it's a total classic, but at the same time, I feel like it was inaccessible for a long time. I don't think I even saw it until the early 2000s because it just wasn't available uh, back in the day when I was actually, uh, when I first found Kurosawa. So I think there's a good chance that a lot of listeners actually haven't seen it. Well, I don't know, maybe maybe they have seen it by now, but definitely worth it. I mean, you can totally see the inspiration for Star Wars. I mean, it's not verbatim, it's not, you know, it's not scene by scene by any means, but the, the basic concepts are there, and, and especially the characters. You can kind of see the, the spunky female lead and uh, the, the two bumbling, shifty peasants that I guess equate to R2-D2 and C-3PO. So you can see you can see it it's it's there you can kind of see the vague the vague inspiration for Star Wars um although I think George Lucas like you know took a mountain of things from other places as well but you can kind of see a, a basic the basic concepts came from this movie definitely a good film uh interesting film if i remember correctly and it's been a while the the va- the basic plot idea is that uh a a princess and a general are on the run or heading somewhere and then uh, they kind of enlist these two bumbling villagers to to kind of help them but they don't really want to re- they don't really reveal their identities until later on i don't know does that kind of sum up the uh, the basic plot yeah basic plot. that sounds about right so yeah really good uh this is this is when you know this is when kurosawa kurosawa was kind of you know on his on on his game and uh it's a it's a great movie definitely definitely worth seeing yeah it was around the time he was just knocking like great movie out after great movie because that was uh i think right around the same time as like seven samurai and like i think he just finished uh you know rashomon just came out and then he was just hitting like every movie out every classic after classic right yeah that's when he was like a powerhouse at that point and uh one thing that's interesting that yeah mentioning the star the obvious star wars connection is that in both movies, the two bumbling, you know, the C-3PO, R2-D2, and then the two farmers, is that they kind of are witness to almost every event. Uh, if you watch uh, most of the major events, they're they're complete witnesses to, much like in Star Wars. 
C-3PO and R2-D2 kind of witness everything that goes on. Yeah, they're almost like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of, uh, of the film. Yeah. Well, that's my number three, Hidden Fortress. Okay. So my number two is... Um... This is an interesting one because it centers around the battle, Force Battle of Kawanakajima. And I would just say all versions of this film because there's so many. I mean, there's all these different prints, you know, from the American version to various Japanese versions. So it's Heaven and Earth or Tento Chito, which actually was filmed in Alberta, Canada because it was cheaper. And... Haruki Kamakawa actually used female Mounties as the Japanese samurai and had them on little ponies. But um, what I like about the film is the whole spectacle. I mean, it's like I haven't seen the full version yet because it's like um, close to four hours long. But there's a prequel called Heaven and Earth, the Dawn episode, which covers a young Kagatora when he was um, in his first battle at the age of 15. And that leads right into Heaven and Earth. That was aired on TV the same time the film came out. And um, the hundred, the longest version I've seen is about two hours. And it has on the disc, there's some extras. It's not subtitled. But um, the major difference, apart from the soundtrack being different on the American version, the American version also has Stuart Whitman doing narration. But um, the focus on the film is not on the two generals, of Kagatora and, and Shinjin. It's actually on um, the life of Kagatora. But I actually, you know, he apparently hated Kurosawa. That's why he decided to make this film. He saw um, Kagamusha and was convinced he could do a better job. It's funny too, because you always think of one or the other. It's kind of like being one in the same, not one in the same, but you can't really think of one without thinking of the other. Yeah, I mean, the battle scenes in this are spectacular. It also created this whole myth about, you know, the Takeda having a troop of women warriors. There was even a book that came out around the same time to back it up. And then someone else wrote a book that completely debunked it (laughs) and said it wasn't true. There was no women warriors. But um, I think it's like one of the great films. I really do. I remember I used to catch it over here on late night TV a lot. And... um, but I do wish at one point someone would actually take the longest version available, which I think is 164 minutes. It came out on Super VHS in 1994 and actually do a subtitling job on it. Because, you know, there's so much missing from it when we see the, the American version. And even the two-hour Japanese version, which is 15 minutes longer, it completely got 15 minutes are huge because it completely shifts the whole emphasis away from the two generals to just Kenshin. But, you know, the main reason I love it is just for the spectacle and the pageantry. One thing I remember most about the movie, well, a couple things. Uh, I mean, that movie is totally a guilty pleasure film for me. I know it took a lot of heat on the Samurai Archives uh, years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> But um, I remember seeing it, I, I think it was the early 90s, I caught it on um, TV. And the late 90s, I found a copy in a mom-and-pop video store. And I remembered I'd offered them like whatever they wanted 
you know, for it. So I ended up paying him ten dollars to own the VHS copy from the video store, which I, I still have that uh, VHS copy. But I remember it was a very colorful film. I thought the the color schemes were very well done. You know, historical inaccuracies aside, um, I did enjoy the actors who played Uzuki Kenshin and uh, Takeda Shingen. I admit openly I am a Takeda Shingen junkie. Uh, I was, you know, even coming on board with the Samurai Archives, I'm a Shingen fanboy. But I remember out of the two Takeda Shingen movies to come out of the 1990s, this is by far the strongest. I think there was a a mini series in Japan that came out around the same time that was horrible. With um Koji Yakusho in the title role and Sonny Chiba's in it somewhere. Right, yeah, and he ends up I think towards the end having this sort of uh syphilis like <laughs> uh feverish uh insanity at the end. Yeah. It was one of those um, TNT or TBS, um, Tobago Broadcast Systems, New Year's movies. They did Masamuni one year and Shinjin the next year. Yeah. And so out of those two, uh, Tento Tito is probably the most, I I think, strongest, of course. Um, If I had to compare it between that and... um, Kagamusha, which spoiler alert is my number, um, was higher up on my list. I, I would probably pick Kagamusha. Yeah, I mean, I picked it because basically I knew somebody else was going to pick Kagamusha. <laughs> and also, like yourself, I'm a Takeda junkie. And I think they're, you know, they're just amazing. I've always been like, you know, too, I've been a fanboy for Takeda and sometimes to an extent of Shinsengumi, even though they're hundreds of years apart. But I love the Takeda, and this is one of the best, you know, films. There was actually um, a TV version in 2008. It was written by James Miki, who did the Aoi Tokugawa Sandai tiger drama and the Masamune tiger drama. Never been subtitled, but um, it has Kinya Kita Oje as one of the gods, and it caught as a guy, um, oh God, I forget his name, the guy who played Masashi in the Kojiro in the Masashi Tiger drama, Masahiro Matsuoka. He plays um, Kenshin, and it's actually pretty well done for a TV film, mainly because of the writing, even though it's never been subbed. But um, Katakawa threatened to actually follow it up with Sekigahara, but of course um, his drug problems got in the way and he got incarcerated instead. But for what it's worth... I still think it's a great film. I really do. I mean, I think, you know, the best way to look at it is to try and see the two-hour version, even without subtitles. It really does elevate the film up another level. And they also, you know, change the soundtrack. They put Van, not Vangelis, Kitaro in places on the U.S. version and brought in Stuart Whitman to do the whole voiceover thing. Okay, so that's my number two. All right, so Mike, I think you're up for number two. So my number two and my number one are both going to be Kurosawa films. And so for my number two, uh, I picked Throne of Blood. And I thought it was probably one of the best renditions of Macbeth that has uh, ever 
been done. And definitely Toshiro Mifun carried this film a lot. I did like um, Isuzu Yamada, who played his wife, who I think was really a very creepy character. I think the first time I watched it, um, I was a teenager, and just her acting coupled with the fact that she was dressed as a traditional courtesan with you know the blackened teeth and the shaved eyebrows... And just her lines and uh, that scene, you know, where she was washing her hands of the imaginary blood, it, it really added to an element of, of I'm going to use the word creepiness, I guess, that uh, added to the atmosphere. And, of course, the climax of the film is one of the best climaxes I have ever seen in cinema, where General uh, Takatoki's men just turn on him in the fort and because of the stunt work that was done and the production that went into it you can definitely see it as a very dramatic action of, um leading to you know, you know the climax of the film i mean if you haven't seen it yet too bad spoiler alert um you had plenty of time to watch it but when they're shooting the arrows at him of course they're really shooting arrows at him close to his head they were running him along fishing lines to get into uh, hit him in the armor the the look on Toshiro Mufun's face is just very dramatic very realistic and so I, I i can see why it is on the list of at least top 20 films you have to watch or you know movies you have to watch if you're in film school yeah, they did shoot real arrows at him, and he was genuinely freaked out. It's in that book by Stuart Galbraith, The Emperor and the Wolf. It talks about you know, that scene where they have him pinned and they shoot the arrows. They use real arrows, and he was just like, you know, he, they didn't tell him beforehand they were going to do that. So the fear you see is actually genuine. And I, rem- I, I if I remember correctly, they did hire, um, was it Yabasumi Masters and to at least help with the scene? Yeah, I think it's like, I agree, it's one of the best adaptions of Macbeth. The only other adaption that I like is the Polanski one. And this is, you know, probably the best. I've never seen any other version that actually really, apart from the Polanski aside, that comes even close to this version. All right, my number two actually already came up earlier in the podcast, but it's uh, Harakiri, the original. And I still, to this day, I still I still see that as like my number two well, it's in my top five of like all films from all internationally, and I just I, I I loved it the first time I saw it, and and I've seen it again multiple times, and I still love it. I uh, like I said, I, there are a few little things that uh, actually, I guess I should say, I had zero problems with the way it was until I saw Takashi Miike's remake, and then I realized that hmm, maybe, maybe these things could have done been done a little bit differently, could have been done a little bit better. But yeah, my number two is the original Harakiri. Um, I really have no complaints with it. I did like a few aspects of Mike's remake a little bit more than I did in the original, but I mean that's real minor because this is this is pretty much a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I had no problem with Harakiri, and I'm surprised I, I couldn't find room with it on my list. I had a couple nitpicks about it, but I thought it really fits in with sort of those the samurai government. They're just kind of douchebags. And you kind of see it in definitely the way the the uh, EA clan is portrayed that he just 
points out all of their hypocrisies to them after they, you know, killed or forced his son, spoiler alert, to commit seppuku. Um, But just pointing out their hypocrisies and just doing everything he possibly can to damage their image. And after it's all said and done, they're still like, yeah, let's just sweep this under the rug. Like, they learn nothing. And I think that is somewhat infuriating in terms of plots, plot points. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, I really like how they do. They handle the ending like that. Like uh, he goes through all this effort, and like you said, he points out all of the flaws. He basically lays it all open, and then they just kind of sweep it under the rug as if it never happened, and that's it. They're just like meh, and and yeah, it was a. At least I think he gained his revenge in those terms, but almost for nothing. But I guess part of the point is they're going to have to live the rest of their lives knowing it, even though it is swept under the rug. Mm, True. All right. Well, that's my number two, the original Harakiri. Guess we're down to number one. So that brings it around to Michael, your number one. Uh, My number one. This is um, a fascinating film. And basically it's by Hideo Gosha, who probably was the best director of um, Jedi Getty and Samurai films next to Kurosawa. And, of course, he used a lot of Kurosawa's people, people, notably Shinobu Hashimoto, who recently passed at the age of 100. And this film is, of course, scripted by Hashimoto. And he has the most eclectic cast you could probably put together in one film. You have um, playing Ryoma Sakamoto is Yujiro Ishihara, who was a fading Nikatsu teen idol and pop singer of the 60s. Then you have the consumer professional, the method actor, Tatsuya Nakadai, as Takache Hanpita. And of course, as Akada Izo, there is Shintaro Katsu, the wild man, drug addict, drunkard, you name it. He was all. And lastly, um, Mishima, the author, playing Takanaka Shinbei in a Satsuma Samurai, the Hidakiri. And this actually, because he commits seppuku in the film, it caused the film a lot of trouble in real life. There's so much that uh, Mishima's family asked um, Shochiko to withdraw the film. Luckily for us, it stayed in print in France, and the versions around are because of French DVD. And of course, it's Hitakiri Tenchu, which is actually taken from part of um, Rataro Shiba's novel, Ryoma Gayuku. And what really lifts this one up more than anything is the actual performances of all the actors. I mean, they're incredible together. There's a really powerful scene, one of the best scenes in the whole film, where um, Han Peter leads his tosser samurai through the castle town, and they're all wearing two swords and gaiter, which, of course, you know, for lower-class samurai is forbidden because they're only allowed to wear one sword and they weren't sandals. So they're doing this in defiance of authority. The first time I saw the film, I didn't even catch that. It wasn't until like the third or fourth showing that I caught it. And there's all these like little subtle nuances in it. But um, more than anything, it's Shintaro Katsu's film. It's like his masterpiece. And I think it's probably the best non-Kurosawa film, period. So, I mean, um, even Gosha has a great body of work, Three Outlaw Samurai. Um, Goyokin, but this is his his bona fide masterpiece. It just can't be topped. 
I mean, the storyline's pretty easy because we've seen it in God knows how many Rioma dramas, the whole formation of a Tossa Loyalist party and their rise and fall, and how uh, Makata Izo becomes um, attached to Katsu Kaishu, but then he gets arrested and returned to Tossa, and in retaliation, he basically rats out Han Peter, who is sentenced to seppuku. But, you know, it's a really amazing, dramatic film. And Katsu is so sleazy and grimy in this. I mean, he looks like he hasn't even had a bath or bathed in about six months. He's just totally filthy and dirty. But, you know, it's probably visually stunning, too. I mean, this would easily be my number one. So it's also known as Tenchu, which is is a um, European name. And luckily, as I said, you know, because of um, what happened to Mishima in real life, it was about three or four months after this film was released, he attempted his coup, and then he committed seppuku in real life. So that, of course, led to the film. There's all these rumors that the film was banned, which it wasn't the case. It was just basically his family, you know, objected to it because of the seppuku scene. So it was withdrawn from circulation. But... um. Even then, it wasn't even withdrawn till the mid-'80s. It actually had two separate theatrical runs in Japan and was a hit both times. But it's only available on French DVD, which, of course, has been subtitled by the fan subbers. So, but I highly recommend, if you haven't seen this film, beg, steal, or borrow, or go out and find a copy. So that's my number one. Yeah, I actually haven't seen it, and uh, that's definitely on my list. Oh, it's a complete masterpiece in every way. Same here. That's another one I have to uh, hunt down. All right. So I guess we move on to Mike and your number one. Yep. So my number one is uh, another Kurosawa film and probably considered one of the greatest films in cinematic history is The Seven Samurai. Really, there's not a whole lot I can say about it that people haven't uh, already heard, but I thought it's one of Kurosawa's greatest movies. It definitely changed cinema. There's a before Seven Samurai and then after Seven Samurai sort of uh, time in cinema that it changed a number of genres, created the genre, it reinvigorated stuff like westerns with the remake, um, The Magnificent Seven, and it also created a lot of the elements of the action film genre, like the slow motion, or um, the the wide widescreen and close-up action shots, and so really, there's a reason why I think it's on the top five lists of greatest movies of all time, and I think it's still one of the top Five greatest samurai movies of all time. Hard to dispute that. No, the ending scene when they're fighting in the rain was just like it's rarely been equaled. I mean, that's a phenomenal staging. There was this actual um, crossover spaghetti western called Stranger in Japan where Kinji Fukasaku worked on. It was basically like a not really a Clint Eastwood type bounty hunter, but um, whatever. This guy, sort of bounty hunter, ends up in Japan at the end of the restoration and um, he gets involved with this samurai clan the Yakuza clan and hidden gold but they recreate that whole scene from Seven Samurai the fighting in the rain at the end only they throw a gatling gun in so but you know Seven Samurai has just 
obviously is the one that changed everything. I mean, at that time, basically, we were inundated with all these Toei films and people running at Chezo, Kataoka, running around with plastic swords. And, you know, so this totally changed the whole equation. It was the third most realistic, so, so realistic for the time. I mean, Kurosawa, with this and with Ra the earlier Rashomon, was just, you know, so far ahead of every other director. When you think of all the rest of the Samurai films of that period, they were like TV westerns, like episodes of Gunsmoke. And he literally changed the whole dynamic. Yeah, even um, a lot of, I mean, the earlier ones from the 40s, like uh, Chusengura, it, it was a lot more talking, not a whole lot of action. And so uh, it really, in a way, elevated a, a lot of the action choreography of course. I mean, the scene with uh, Kyuzo, the duel, stands out as probably, I think, one of the most best shot scenes in, in terms of the genre or even the the final yeah the final battle like I said with the rain which is copied I, I think has been copied in numerous samurai films um, I think I, I'll make a case that uh, Takeshi Kitano borrowed it for his version um, of Zatoichi because there was a a scene where I believe he was fighting in the rain yeah, there is. There is. There's also another big pivotal scene in that film, which has been used several times, which is actually based on a true story, is the hostage scene. The whole, like, sword of no sword bit. That was actually a real-life story that happened with um, Yagyu Munanori, or his father, Sekishusai, one of the two of them, I forget which. But um, And it also appears in several Yagyu films and dramas, but... um. It was great that they worked that in there. And as if you notice in the crowd, when, during one of the hostage scenes going on, you'll see an extra who is Nakadai. He's spotted just for like a few seconds. You can see him in the crowd. Yeah, I remember that from the, uh, the audio commentary when I was watching with Seven Samurai. He points that out, and then I was like, oh, cool. I never realized that. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Kurosawa himself said he never studied history he hired people to do it for him and then come back and tell him what to do that seems to have worked but he thought you know they came back when they decided to work that the hostage story into it and but basically that ending is just phenomenal that fight in the rain i mean i don't think i can think of anything that beats that really this was like a stand of alone you know amazing set piece and i i think they had the right group of actors for that um, you know job uh, I can't think of a single person I hated in that film um, Takashi Shimura of course as the leader and uh, of course it's one of you know looking back it's one of Mufun's earlier works but you can see really why he would go on to be as popular as he did um, playing the farmer turned you know well Warrior, not so much Samurai, but um, again, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, then, you know, too bad. <laughs> but really, I, I think it was a standout cast. One of my other favorite scenes uh, was when they were testing people that they were trying to hire, and they were hitting them with uh, the stick as they come in the door, or trying to, and I think it was um, going all the way back, uh, I think it was was it Yoshio Inaba that was just standing there laughing 
Like no tricks. Yeah, no, there's also um remember that Masashi Tiger drama? They actually borrowed the whole script of Seven Samurai for the pilot episode and got sued by Kurosawa's estate. But it, you know, of course they didn't do it anywhere nowhere near as good. Aside from his T V limitations, just the acting was nowhere near. Right. Right. Oh, that was the uh the newer Musashi? Yeah, the two thousand three Tiger drama, the first episode is totally a reworking of Seven Samurai. Right down to the fight in the rain and all that, you know, everything. Hmm. They put, you know, Masashi and, and Matahachi in it, but it just doesn't work. It's like it was a bad idea. They shouldn't have done it. Hmm. Well, they got him sued too, so apparently not. <laughs> yeah, they had to pay a lot of, NHK had to pay a lot of royalties on that. All right, Mike, anything else on uh, Seven Samurai? Nope. All right, that brings us to my number one. How could it be any other film? I, I also went with Seven Samurai for my number one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. there's not much you can really say about it because it, it is an obvious choice for number one. But uh, I, I remember I saw that when I was in high school. I think it was one of the first Samurai films I'd seen. I think I probably saw maybe Ran or uh, Kagemusha first. But uh, I remember I watched, me and my friends actually in high school watched Seven Samurai multiple times. And even now I can watch it again and you'll always you'll still find little things, little different things to it, little little things you might not have noticed before. And even considering it's nineteen fifty four when they filmed it, the, the action scenes and the sword fights don't look fake and don't look like kind of the dance numbers that they, they did in a lot of the other samurai films of that of that era. And I mean most famous that's showcased by uh Seiji Miyoguchi. Especially in the, the duel. But, you know, Miyoguchi I'm trying to think of his character's name now. Um, Kyozo? Oh, Q- Kyozo, yeah. Yeah, Kyozo. Uh, it's sort of the stone fa- uh, sword master, but that most famous duel, and especially that one scene where uh, Toshiro Mifune was trying to copy him after he killed uh, a couple of the bandits and got the gun, and then Toshiro Mifune is trying to up him. You know, he's just trying to one-up all the samurai because he's just, you know, spoiler alert, not a samurai compensating by carrying around this really big nodachi so i I think it was really a classic number one in every list i can think of yeah i figured it's an it's 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 so obvious to almost be like hacky but it deserves it deserves a number one spot in my opinion yeah i was trying to avoid kurosawa and i couldn't i couldn't get away with it yeah he's basically he's like the guy that kind of set the tone for the rest of the century basically yeah, both in Japanese cinema and American, I would say. All right, so that's our uh, that's our top ten. Hope the listeners enjoyed it. So why don't we go down and relist our top ten so that the listeners can make note? And I guess we'll start with uh, Michael since you're you've been going first. Okay, here we go. Okay, number ten for me was um, by Masaki Kobayashi, In of Evil or We Give Our Lives for Nothing, Inochi Bonifuro. Number nine, Kaiden Shibafusa Inoki, Ghost Story of Inoki, or The Mother Tree. That's number nine. Number eight was by Kenji Masumi, starring Rise Out Ichikawa, Destiny's Son. Number seven, also starring Rise Out Ichikawa, Daisan no Kagamusha, or The Third Shadow. Number six, was Broken Swords, 
Hiken Yaburi is a Japanese title based on the novel Haku Oki, written by Daisuke Ito, and sorry, directed by Daisuke Ito. And this one stars Hiroki Masakata and Kojiro Hongo. Then five, Kinji Fukasako's Abe Ichizoku no Inbo, starring Hiroyuki Sanada and Koichi Sato, or the Abe Clan's English title. Number four, The Last Samurai, not to be confused with Tom Cruise. This is the 1974 um, Kenji Masumi film starring Hideki Takahashi and Ken Ogata. Number three is The Floating Castle, starring Koichi Sato and Mansai Nomura. Number two, Tento Chito, Heaven and Earth, directed by Haruki Karakawa, starring Masahiko Sagawa as Takeda Shinjin. And number one, Hitokiri Tenchu, directed by Hideo Gosha, with Yukio Mishima, Shintaro Katsu, Tatsuya Nakadai, and Yujiro Ishihara. All right. And uh, Mike, how about your top 10? Okay, so my top 10 to recap was number 10 was Sword of Doom. Um, the last Zato Ichi was number 9. Number 8 was 13 Assassins. Number 7 was Samurai Rebellion. Number 6 was Kiru, also known as Kill. Followed by Kagamusha. My number four was Gate of Hell. And then for the top three, it was number three, Twilight Samurai, with number two being Throne of Blood, and my number one pick was The Seven Samurai. All right. For my top ten, we've got number ten, Aragami from 2003, directed by Ryuhei Kitamura. And that one was starring... Masaya Kato and Takao Osawa. Number nine is Ronin Guy from 1990. Number eight is When the Last Sword is Drawn. Number seven was the new version of Harakiri from 2011, directed by Takashi Miike. Number six was 13 Assassins from 2010, also by Takashi Miike. Number five was 2017's Sekigahara. Number four was a uh, split between Yojimbo and Sanjuro both directed by Akira Kurosawa. Number three was Hidden Fortress from 1960, the inspiration for Star Wars. And number two was the original Harakiri from 1962. And number one was, of course, Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. All right, and I also uh, polled the listeners before this episode to get a, a consensus on their top five. So, the listener top five. This is what they came up with between Twitter and Facebook. Number five, 13 Assassins. Number four, Twilight Samurai. Number three, Harakiri. Uh, either one. It, it was they, A lot of people didn't discriminate between the new one and the old one, so I just had to go with Harakiri. Number two was Yojimbo, and number one was Seven Samurai, which is not surprising. All right, so let's give our honorable mentions here. So, Michael, what did you have for honorable mention? Oh, God, I got quite a few, actually, but I'll um, get through them as quickly as possible. Let me start off the whole Kiyoshiro Nomuri franchise directed by various directors from Issei Mori to um, Kenji Masumi and starring Rise Out Ichikawa as the Full Moon Swordsman, also known as Sleepy Eyes of Death or Son of Black Mass. And another one which narrowly made my top 10 
was Portrait of Hell, starring Tatsuya Nakadai and Kinosuke Nakamura. It's part Kaiden, part historical drama, and part horror movie, as um, Kinosuke Nakamura plays this really horrific lord who once says Korean painter to capture hell. This is in the Heian era. And so to inspire him, he decides to burn his daughter alive in front of him. <laughs> There's also an appearance from um, Tejimaro from Rashimon. It's written by the same author who um, leads a raid of bandits. So it's almost like a companion to Rashomon. And the last one was from 2005, which is Runin Banished, which is starring Keiko Matsuzawa. It's set in 1838 and follows the fate of various people exiled to Hachijiro Island in the Pacific Ocean. And basically, um, Matsuzaka is an ex-prostitute courtesan convicted of arson. And this charismatic stranger arrives on the island and they plot several escape attempts. And, of course, they're caught. But it's just a really beautiful film. And lastly, my former number three, now demoted to the ones that missed the boat, Furin Kazan or Samurai Banners with um, Nakamura Kenosuke again and Mifune. All right. And uh, so, Mike, how about you? Um, before I begin, honorable mention uh, should go to the Keanu Reeves movie, the his version of Choosing Guru, the 47 Ronin, uh, simply because without it bombing as horribly as it did, we wouldn't have John Wick 1, 2, or 3. <laughs> I, I can get on board with that. <laughs> so my uh, honorable mention goes to Sunny Chiba in his Lone Wolf and Cub series. I truly enjoyed it for being totally over the top and just being classic, you know, Sunny Chiba Chambara. Of course, it was so popular it made its way into um, a derivative film, Kill Bill 1 and 2. Uh, that was definitely, I think, mine. And I, I believe... Another one was Samurai Fiction, of course, uh, as, as another kind of runner-up for me. It was the least serious of all the samurai films I have ever watched, but you know, it definitely was fun. You could see a lot of where the inspiration, and you have a, both a soundtrack by Tamiyasu Hote, and you have him starring as the main antagonist, and he always just plays super cool. So I think those were my runner-ups. All right, and uh, my runner-up, I only really have two of them. First one is uh, Gandyujima from 2003. That was the movie starring Motoki Masahiro as Musashi. And yeah, it's it's a very non-traditional Musashi film because it's probably closer to reality than the rest of them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically he plays he plays Musashi. I don't want to spoil anything, but basically he plays Musashi as a a large, smelly angry bully basically oh, who six his students on right and with an interesting twist at the end so i don't know if that's available in america i'm not i'm not sure but it's definitely worth watching if you can get your hands on it it's on um the gray market people have it um ichiban i believe um samurai dvd's um co-partner put it out okay yeah if anyone's a fan of musashi they should watch gun Ujima from 2003 starring uh Starring Motoki Masahiro, definitely worth it. And then my second runner-up is uh, the the Tom Cruise version of The Last Samurai, because I actually liked that movie. You know, it's not a top ten by any means, but I, I did like that movie, and I think it is worth watching. I know 
people like to crap on it, but actually it was a pretty good movie. I really lo I loved the costumes, and I think, you know, even though Tom Cruise is a weird, a weird dude, I, I think he's uh, good in pretty much everything he does. The ending, once again, the ending to that was phenomenal. You know, the um, samurai led by Sonata and Watanabe charging into the new Meiji forces. Yeah, the only thing, the one thing I didn't like about that scene was it literally looked like they were fighting on a golf course. <laughs> oh yeah, well manicured lawns and right. I, I that seemed so odd to me. But beyond that, I I loved the cinematography. I loved the costumes. I just all I, I thought it was a good movie. I mean, it it was definitely a, a guilty pleasure movie. Oh well, yeah. Like I said, it's not definitely not in my top ten by any means. But yeah, it's a, it's a good movie. Yeah, I remember seeing it in theaters, and I, I thought it was a well-done movie, and uh, I thought the soundtrack even was really... soundtrack uh, was great. Yeah, and Tom Cruise's, uh, Tom Cruise's Japanese was actually pretty good, too, compared to the vast majority of American actors who try to pretend they speak Japanese. He actually did really good. He actually was um, taught a lot, including like some Japanese and to fight by Sonata. Mm, Sonata pretty much choreographed all the fighting on the whole film. And and Zwick should get credit for hiring Japanese actors and actresses. Oh, 100%. I mean, it could have been a disaster. It could have been like that stupid geisha movie with like Chinese and Vietnamese and weird random actors instead of actually hiring legit Japanese actors. So, I mean, I think the casting was spot on for that movie. I, I don't think I would change a single casting uh, on it. Interesting story on it, though, very quickly. It was written by um, Australian George Miller, which I believe is the same Miller that did the Mad Max series. Oh, wow. He did the original draft of it 20 years before they made it. And his role model was actually Saigo Takamori, of course, for the Watanabe role. And um, this journalist, Augustus Mounsey, an American journalist who'd been in the Civil War, and came to Japan. And in the original script, the um, Algren, Mounsey character, was not meant to participate in any fighting. You know, he was just meant to be an observer. And he actually sued the screenwriters because they cut him out of all the credit. And they had ended up giving him a portion of the royalties. But his original version, you know, of course, you know, basically... It was taboo for the white man to, like, you know, jump in there and fight with the rebels. But, um, of course, you know, it actually, you know, Cruz wanted to do it differently. And so, whatever. But at least it got made. Yeah. And I think it's a really excellent film, actually. Looking at it all these years later, I went from loathing it to actually liking it. And I'm really appreciative because thanks to the success of that film, we had so many films come out legitimately on DVD which we'd never have happened without that. So if nothing else, it brought like a whole flood of Japanese films to everyone's attention, especially right. the whole like Sonata catalog or Sunny Fever, all kinds of stuff. Between that and Kill Bill, you know, I mean, even stuff like the Shadow Warriors TV series got released. Yeah, Twilight Samurai probably wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for that. No, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have stood a chance if it wasn't for that last Samurai film. That was, a, you know, a deal breaker. Hopefully, a similar similar will happen when this Shogun TV series airs next year. Yeah, assuming it's not a disaster or it doesn't get uh, protested on Twitter to the point where they decide not to make it. Yeah, I heard Tom Hardy rumored for the role, but now I hear he's retired from acting. 
So we have All no right. idea who's going to be casting it yet. All right. So I, I guess that's it for the uh, that's it for the episode. So thanks for uh, thanks for being on. Thanks for participating. Thanks Thank for, you, everybody. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. All right, and that's it for this episode. So that's it. That's the top 10 samurai films of all time, according to us. You know, a lot of those movies aren't available, so it might take some hoop jumping in order to get your hands on them, but it's definitely worth it. But if it is available through Amazon, and you're so inclined, head over to samuraipodcast.com and make your purchase through the Amazon link over there. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does kick something back to the podcast. And again, like always, I want to thank the patrons on Patreon for their support. And if you think you might be interested in helping out the podcast, or even just checking it out, head over to patreon.com slash samuraiarchives and see what's over there. Because like I said at the beginning of this episode, I've got some pretty big plans for the podcast, but it's not something that I can pull off without your help. So head over to patreon.com slash samuraiarchives and see how you can help out. And lastly, I want to give a shout out to patron Marty Brennan. Thanks for your support. It's greatly appreciated. All right, so thus ends another episode of the Samurai Archives podcast. Catch you later.